it's a great pleasure as Master of Birkbeck to welcome you um, to this inaugural lecture. Please do not expect any erudite words um, on the subject of the lecture. In the last um, 10 days, I've chaired one on crystal structure of biological molecules, one on psychology, one on earth sciences, and now one on law. And I think I missed a couple along the way that I couldn't do. So it does demonstrate the enormous strength of Birkbeck across different fields, but also, I mean, particularly, I think, in Adam's case, the um, long-term careers that many people have at Birkbeck. He did his PhD here, he had a brief flirtation with the University of Kent, um, and then returned and moved steadily through the ranks um, based on extraordinarily high-quality research, commitment to teaching, commitment to administration, to all the three things um, that we value greatly at Birkbeck, and also from what I can gather from my lack of specialist knowledge of tonight's topic, law actually applied to real problems and to poverty and so on in a way which is a social um, benefit and so on, exactly what we expect at Birkbeck. So it's a very great pleasure um, to introduce to you Adam Geary, who's going to give his inaugural lecture. Thank you very much indeed. Um, can I just say before I start how honoured I am to be here this evening and how thrilled I am as well. I mean, I know it's a Wednesday. It's a difficult night to come out. It's a difficult time, five o'clock. I know that a lot, quite a few people have travelled from quite a long way to be here. I sense that the GDP of this country might have dipped because of all the days off people have taken to come here. So. Let me just say before I begin just truly how honoured and how thrilled I am to be here. And can I also thank uh, Lou Walcher, who will be saying a few words afterwards. Lou's come all the way from uh, Seattle. Uh, so uh, thank you very much indeed. Let me begin then. Uh, this afternoon, I want to talk about poverty and jurisprudence. This is a somewhat strange pairing of themes, but I hope that it will take us towards an interesting set of questions about the limits and possibilities of law, and ultimately, the question of the relationship between poverty, law, and welfare. These are already very difficult terms. I hope to define them as I go along, but let me tell you how, the, how I hope the argument will develop. First of all, I want to introduce you to three representative figures, George Orwell, William Stringfellow, and Ed Sparer. We'll then engage with an argument around three key terms, alienation, experience, and sympathy, or solidarity. These themes will be read into our three authors and then pulled together to engage with the relationship between law and welfare final brief section will set up some conclusions with reference to contemporary positivist legal thinking, in particular Joseph Raz's book, The Morality of Freedom. That's the plan anyway, we'll see what happens. So, first of all to our representative figures, William Stringfellow, celebrated in his time and now largely forgotten. Stringfellow was a radical Christian who left Harvard Law School to practice in the ghettos of New York City in the mid-1960s. Edward V. Sparer, more or less a contemporary of Stringfellow's and the guiding intelligence behind litigation over welfare rights in the United States. Sparer, a former communist, was a leading figure recruited 
into Johnson's War on Poverty. He also had links to the welfare rights movement of that period. Finally, George Orwell, who needs no introduction. The Orwell I want to talk about, though, is a young man, a colonial policeman, who, disgusted with the work that he had to do in Burma, turned his back on his class and, disguised as a tramp, reported on the conditions of the working class. Later, volunteering to fight for the Republican cause in the Spanish Civil War. He briefly looked at the proofs of the book I want to focus upon a little bit later, The Road to Wigan Pier, in Barcelona, before returning to the front where he was wounded, shot in the neck by a fascist sniper. What brings together these three arguably quite different figures? Although, of course, the cultural experiences of the United States and Britain are very different, we could at least allow ourselves this generalisation. The 30 or so years that separate Orwell from Stringfellow and Sparer are those that stretch from the Great Depression through the New Deal and the Second World War to the foundation of the welfare state. What do I mean if I'm saying that Stringfellow, Orwell and Sparer can tell us something about the relationship between poverty and law? To deal with these issues, I want to make reference to a philosophical concept, alienation. I'm not going to go into great detail on this concept, other than to say the following argument draws on the work of Simone Weil, who is very much one of the presiding spirits of this paper. Weil was a reader of Marx and encountered the concept of alienation in his work. However, she did something very interesting with it something that expands and further elaborates the sense that Marx gave the word. So, it'd be useful to establish, first of all, what Marx meant and how they elaborates this meaning. And I then want to relate this term back to my main thesis here. The German word that Marx used, and forgive my German, was Entfremdung. It's been translated into English as estrangement or alienation. It begs the question, estrangement or alienation from what? For Marx, alienation is from Gattungswesen, species essence, or species being. What I'm going to suggest is a concept of our being with each other, our social being. To cut a very long story short, it is as if, for Marx, living under the conditions of production for the market somehow separate us from ourselves. In this context, we could say that the concept of alienation is part of a tradition of heterodox economic thinking. And if we acknowledge that, for Marx at least, this is characterised by social degradation, by, amongst other social effects, structural and endemic poverty, then we may start to see certain links. However, the point I want to stress is this. Whilst they might agree with this general sense of alienation from Marx, she took the term in another direction and related it to the question of human experience. And this is the argument that I want to stick with for the moment. They mixed together Marx and Christianity. Thus, in reading Marx, she reminds, of, reminds of, of an idea present in Marx's own work, but
but largely misread or misunderstood by his commentators. To talk of alienation is to talk of interiority, of the immaterial, of the soul. Alienation is a malady of the soul. For veil, for they, I beg your pardon, alienation makes us inhuman. We can build on this sense of the word, of this argument, in thinking about the related concept of reification. There's a large debate on reification and its relation to alienation. But the key point for they is this. Alienated or reified experience is no experience at all. It is the point at which one stops thinking and stops feeling and stops acting in any meaningful sense. It's then this sense of being lost to oneself, of sliding out of view, a malady of the soul. Thinking about alienation, this has a rather peculiar effect. It means that idealists have to engage with the material world. And materialists are forced to talk about the soul. To get alienation, we need to use resources from theology, from psychoanalysis, and from philosophy. So, for me and for the argument in this paper, reification, alienation, is the failure to connect with the world, failing to find oneself in the world. If you read into this literature, you often find a distinction between the authentic and the inauthentic. I think, for me, this is too crude a distinction. I want to try and return to this idea of experience in order to try and get at a perhaps more a nuanced idea of anticipation, which we'll then use to think about Stringfellow, Orwell, and Sparrow. So, in alienation or in reification, one's role, one's response to the world, has become reified, quite literally, turned into a thing, frozen out. No longer a process, no longer a becoming, if you like. No longer experience in any meaningful sense. It's not for nothing that R.D. Lang, Lang commented that experience used to be called the soul. To get at what these various references mean, I think we actually have to look at what the word experience means, the etymological sense of experience. The first bit of the word ex means out of. And then the next bit, experience, I guess in the English, relates to the root per, P-E-R, which means to lead or to pass over. It's linked to the term peritus in Latin, which means, interestingly enough for us, to test or even to put on trial. And this, of course, is the first lecture in a series of lectures this year called Law on, Law on Trial. So this idea of experience is, to, is linked etymologically to the notion of testing something. It's linked to the notion of putting something on trial. But if we go back to the, suffix, the prefix, the X, it's also a working through, a process, something that comes out of something else. Even perhaps a reflexivity. I don't think you can talk of testing in a sensible way unless you talk of the person testing something and the effect of that testing on the person testing that something. A testing, if you will, then, of the self. And if we read this into the next, at least the Latin root here, which is perius, which 
it translates into English as peril, danger. Putting something at stake or perhaps living dangerously. It would seem then that the process of experience, of becoming and testing, of putting into question is the opposite of existing in a reified way. To experience in a meaningful sense is to be open to the world and to be open to others. Already, I'm aware that there are a great deal of problems with this idea and with this thesis. These words, alienation, reification, they're, they're approximations. I doubt that they actually describe what I want to get at. If I had time to do it, I think I would probably want to talk about a phenomenology of alienation, but this would be quite complicated. We'd have to look at experience of guilt, bad faith, inauthenticity, freedom, love, and death. And the manifold relationships between the self, the intimate self, and the public self, the public others that we come across. Begs other complicated questions. What does it mean to be in or out of alienation? These are difficult questions. At best, and I think I can move, move this argument forward really by just hanging on to this term, this, this sense of the term here. At best, the term alienation reification is an approximation, an approximate description of a complex social and political reality. Final theme in this part of the argument, the theme of sympathy. Sympathy, again, etymologically, feeling with. I want to try and translate this as this idea of concern for the other. To be sympathetic is to be concerned for others. But sympathy in this sense, in this sense of concern for others, is not standing in another's place, not trying to carry the other, if you like. Nor is it a concern, if you like, with a statistical reality. I'd like to say that it's something visceral, affective, something that happens. Finally, one's sympathetic relation with others, or to be in sympathy with others, is not that of a relationship between an active person being sympathetic and passive objects to whom one is sympathetic. Objects that somehow deserve one's sympathy. For me, the term sympathy connects with a different term, which is the term uh, solidarity. For me, I think the experience of sympathy that I'm trying to get at is more really adequately described as a notion of fellow feeling, which is reciprocal. Reciprocal concern, it's a dynamic, lang again. Man is a patient agent, an agent patient, inter-experiencing, interacting with his fellows. If you forgive lang, Lang's rather kind of loaded sexist language, I think that the, the sense of this thing is, is fairly clear. And the, in terms of this argument, I want to disassociate sympathy from any idea of charity or benevolence. Ultimately, towards the end of this argument, I want to relate it to the notion of solidarity and ultimately to the notion of welfare. But welfare understood generally and crudely through this concept of concern for one's fellow human beings and welfare with a hyphen between well and fair in order for us to get at the primordial meaning of welfare, a meaning arguably that has been lost. So a little bit of clarification before we move to think about Orwell. To the extent that the poor or poverty appear in this paper, 
the poor, even if they exist as such, are not objects of pity or charity, nor are they objects of statistical social science. In some ways, reading this concern through our three authors, the poor, or at least the poor as they appear in the work of Orwell et al., are bound up with our understanding of self and others, of our political and legal engagements. What I want to do now is try and pull these themes together, focus a little more on how the concepts of alienation, experience and sympathy might allow us to generalise, to draw something out from the work of Stringfellow, Stringfellow Orwell and Sparrow. This is the kind of middle eight of the paper. The sense of experience I want to pursue into these authors and ultimately into this idea of welfare is a sense of social experience, a lived experience as the testing of the self, the abandonment of a role or an office in order to, well, what? If we pick up on the other meanings of alienation, of Marx's meanings that we started with, it might allow us to suggest that the encounter with poverty as a form of social degradation, as something that systematically happens to human beings, and in a sense that I want to try and pin down, has happened to the self and the self's relationship to others, as experienced by Vey, Orwell, Sparer, and Stringfellow. So, let me move now more towards Orwell, leave behind that rather philosophical analysis. What I'm looking at here is Orwell's book, The Road to Wigan Pier. It's a book of rep reportage. He was commissioned by Victor Galanz to go to the north of England and to report back on the terrible conditions. This was in the uh, 30s, in 1936, on the terrible social conditions that were being experienced there. So it's often presented, and Orwell indeed is often presented, as, uh, a, as a writer whose prose style, whose sensibility is a model of absolute clarity. Orwell is a clear seer, and I think that's true. I think once, though, one starts reading The Road to Wigan Pier, reading it in detail, other things are happening. It's a book of auto-analysis, if nothing else. It's Orwell, which, of course, is not his real name. It's already a problem there, in a sense. Um, it's the way in which Orwell is testing his own experiences, in the sense I was trying to outline earlier on. It's as if Orwell wants to see things as they are, to see himself in a, in a proper sense, in a meaningful sense, to become unfrozen in that sense. In the second part of the book, which was perhaps when it was published the most uh, problematic part, Victor Glantz, who had commissioned it, was actually quite worried about how this, this would read because Orwell moves away from this reportage, from you know, what the conditions are like in Wigan, to this really quite focused analysis of, him, of himself. And it starts, one of the significant chapters starts with the following lines. Quote, The road from Mandalay to Wigan is a long one, and the reasons for taking it are not immediately clear. Orwell is telling us of his experiences of being an imperial policeman in Burma. He goes on to say that to grow to hate colonialism and the empire, one had to be intimately involved in what he calls its dirty work. Quote, I hated imperialism. I hated the imperialism I was serving with a bitterness which I probably cannot make clear. In this bitterness and loathing, Orwell becomes a policeman who hates the law, hiding the sentiment that, quote, 
The worst criminal who ever walked is morally superior to the hanging judge. Admittedly, as he says in the text. These are secret and sentimental thoughts. But they are the responses to the faces of the prisoners that he had oversight of. Quote, squatting in the reeking cages of the lockups, the grey, cowed faces of the long-term convicts. This then is a visceral response to what Orwell says, and this is a quote, the expression of the human face. Returning to England, it is precisely this memory of faces that leads to Orwell's, quote, immense weight of guilt, linked to a sense, again, he says this is sentimental, that the oppressed are always right and the oppressors always wrong. He writes that it was necessary to, quote, submerge oneself, to get right down amongst the oppressed. These are Orwell's words. So, the desire to identify with the English working class, or classes, was, first of all, for Orwell, because they provided an analogy with the Burmese. For Orwell, though, reflecting back in this kind of auto-analysis, this is still symbolic. It is not seeing things for what they are. Nevertheless, this motivates the desire to become one with, quote, the lowest of the low, quote again, social outcasts, tramps, beggars, criminals, prostitutes. The biblical echoes here are extremely interesting. And so when Orwell says, quote, I hope my guilt would drop from me, I think the reader receives this quite strong sense that this is some kind of spiritual adventure, a spiritual experience. Suitably disguised, Orwell makes his way to Limehouse Causeway and to a lodging house for single men, quote. Going into that dark doorway of the common lodging house seemed to me to be like going down to some dreadful subterranean place. What Orwell is talking about is a threshold, a passage down and a passage within. And it's pathetic. A man in shirt sleeves, the overseer of the lodging house, takes his money and shows him to, quote, a frowsy, firelit kitchen underground with, quote, stevedores and navvies and a few sailors sitting about playing draughts and drinking tea. When offered a cup of tea by a drunken stevedore, Orwell says it was a kind of baptism. After that, quote, everybody was polite and gentle and took me utterly for granted. Orwell entered the world of the poor. Quote, the class bar was down or seemed to be down and in that, quote, horribly boring sub-world of the tramp, I had a feeling of release, of adventure, which seems absurd when I look back, but which was sufficiently vivid at the time. So, joining the poor, palling up with them. What is this? It's not acting, perhaps more real than that, although clearly the disguise is important, or has to disguise himself as a tramp. It's not, in a sense, participant observation, although some people would say that what Orwell is doing is participant observation. Nor is it done from some strange socialist sentiment. At this point, Orwell probably didn't consider himself a socialist. It's a spiritual journey, obviously into the self, but also into the submerged world of the poor, of these others, which is both the closest thing and also impossibly distant. So, a baptism, a rebirth, 
peculiar language, encounters with others. One other theme must detain us in our engagement with Orwell. I want to read a short passage from Orwell's diaries, which actually does turn up in the road to Wigan Pier, slightly altered. And it concerns an incident in Wigan in 1936. Quote, Passing up a horrible, squalid side alley, saw a woman, youngish but very pale, and with the usual draggled, exhausted look. Kneeling by the gutter outside a house and poking a stick up the leaden waste pipe, which was blocked. I thought, how dreadful a destiny it was to be kneeling in a gutter in a back alley in Wigan, in the bitter cold, prodding a stick up a blocked drain. At that moment she looked up and caught my eye, and her expression was as desolate as I've ever seen. It struck me that she was thinking just the same thing as I. We'll probably never know exactly what Orwell or the woman were thinking, but something is shared between them. The narrator is sunk in the cares of the day, walking through the dirty, frigid streets of Wigan. In the moment when his glance meets with that of the woman, something passes between them. He looks at her and she at him. They share a sense of complete desolation. Could this also be an experience of sympathy? Something happened, a human response to the misery of the other person. The road from Mandalay to Wigan is indeed a long one. At this point, I want to turn from Orwell to William Stringfellow. Indeed, in turning from Orwell to Stringfellow, we turn to a lawyer who, like Orwell, turned his back on a set of social expectations, expectations about the kind of role he should perform in life. Our Stringfellow reports, quote, I went to the East Harlem ghetto directly upon finishing at the law school and began to practice law there on my own. It was regarded by most of my peers as a curious venture, idiosyncratic and controversial. Stringfellow boasted of being the poorest paid graduate from Harvard Law School. We can perhaps see his engagement with the poor of East Harlem as something motivated by his faith. A theme, in a sense, that we can also find in Orwell. But let's call it for the moment, for want of a better word, sympathy. Stringfellow wrote of his experiences in a book, his book, My People Are the Enemy, a book that, as he reports, has some impact in, quote, exposing the neglect of persons, especially the dispossessed of the inner city regions by the legal profession, in part attributable to the co-option of lawyers and legal education by commercial or similar principalities and powers. To return to the early analysis, we could say, in a qualified sense perhaps, that Stringfellow is acting against alienation, acting against reification. Quote, in East Harlem, on Block Island, in the law school, I simply do not share in that feigned professional sophistication which sponsors and inculcates the indifference of lawyers, the constitutional priorities, particularly the Bill of Rights, or which rationalises a preference for the laissez-faire interests of commerce over the freedom, safety, welfare of human beings, or which asserts a so-called sanctity of property which devalues and demeans human life." Close quote. 
I think that Stringfellow's words can be understood as an attack on reification, the reduction of people to things, and the fetishization of what in the previous paragraph he referred to as principalities and powers, and later characterised as powers of death. Arguably, Stringfellow is further elaborating Vey's lexicon with such terms. But importantly for us, he's talking about the law and law's blindness to lives that have slipped out of view. Resonates with a great deal of contemporary social theory, in particular Bauman, and I'd like to thank my lovely wife Mary for this particular reference uh, from uh, Bauman's book Collateral Damage. Human uncertainty and vulnerability are the foundations of political power. I think Stringfellow and Bauman are talking about exactly the same thing here. Before turning to Sperra, I just want to look at one last bit of Stringfellow's writing, which I find quite powerful, which I will uh, read through, and then try and pull some ideas together. So this is Stringfellow talking. The stairway smelled of pissed. The smells inside the tenement, number 18342 East 100th Street, Manhattan, were somewhat more ambiguous. They were a suffocating mixture of rotting food, rancid mattresses, dead rodents, dirt, and the stale odours of human life. This was to be home. It had been home before for a family of eight. Five kids, three adults, some of their belongings had been left behind. Some of their life had too. The walls and the ceiling were mostly holes and patches and peeling paint, sheltering legions of cockroaches. This was to be my home. I wondered for a moment why. Then I remembered that this was the sort of place in which most people live, in most of the world, for most of the time. This was something worse than I was home. I think there's a great deal going on in this passage, but one thing that I want to comment on is the idea of home, as this metaphor, I think, is responsible for the powerful effects of this writing. What does it mean to be at home? Here, Stringfellow is estranged from home, alienated from home, whilst being at home, or rather, in a home that has been home to many others. The last sequence of the paragraph is perhaps this sense of connection, with the traces of others, to the sense that one is experiencing what they have experienced. As if this can be read as a passage through estrangement. It would not be right to say that this is some dialectic where everything is resolved. Rather, the thinking, feeling self is the open self. And the one, that it could be said, is now in something of an ethical dilemma. Stringfellow is not poor. He has chosen to be where others find themselves. For all this dilemma, I think what we can take from Stringfellow is the sense that poverty is an injury, an attack on the dignity of human beings. What might we make of this? In trying to engage with this, I want to then turn to uh, an article written by Ed Sparer, um, published in the Stanford Law Review in the early 80s. Reflecting on his experiences as a poverty lawyer, involved in, as I said, uh, constitutional litigation on welfare rights in the United States, what Sparer does in, I think, quite an interesting way, 
is to argue against high-sounding ways of describing his own motivation as something like a faith in humanity. He's after something much less ambitious and much less certain. The grain of this thinking is quite peculiar. In order to elaborate these terms, Sperris sketches out an interesting philosophical move. His first reference point is Marx, and a term from Marx's important essay on the Jewish question that resonates with the understanding of alienation in what are called the 1844 manuscripts. This sounds peculiar, but let me go through with it. The fundamental idea that Sperr is grappling with is that of the disconnecting effect of what Sperr after, after Marx calls bourgeois rights, the, quote, so-called rights of man. These are not the realisation of freedom and liberty, but the right to property. For Marx, is the separation of man from man. However, Sperra is reading Marx in such a way to move away from the political forms that communism has taken. At this point in his life, he's left the Communist Party. Um, and he's trying to build, I think self-consciously trying to build this a kind of a, what he calls, a, or could be seen as a kind of American radicalism. It does be quite stupid to set up some simplistic opposition of private property to utopian community. What Sparrow is doing, I think, is reading Marx's lines as a riddle. The answer being, to the riddle, another riddle. He returns to the idea that we were thinking about right at the beginning, our species being, quote from Sparrow. An idea, species being, nobody quite knows what Marx meant by this idea, an idea that Sparrow gives a somewhat existential slant. Species being is our self-expression through our work and our relationships and our experiences. Those relationships that we enter into with all the risks involved and those relationships that are ones of emotional and political solidarity. To carry forward this intriguing philosophical and political and perhaps even spiritual register, Sparrow brings together Marx with the thinker Martin Buber. This is perhaps a somewhat unusual pairing. But it's a way of getting at this peculiar notion of species being that is non-reductivist and is an engagement with the openness of experience, most specifically the experience that we have of others. Thus, the private in this analysis is not so much the, private pro the concept of private property that Marx is critical of, but it's the idea of an interiority, the soul, if you like, a privacy of the self that is withheld, that doesn't become public, but at the same time is the very presupposition of any form of public life. In order to elaborate this idea, Spera brings together three themes. The experience, as discussed by Martin Buber, of the encounter with others, the other person. The idea of mutuality, and most strangely, the idea of death. Encounters with others can be fraught. Disconnection and hostility as likely as any kind of mutual appreciation. I think this is one of the themes that, to me, passes through, I guess, a, a reference point that I've always had, which is the, the critical legal studies movement, and in particular the writings of people like Dun Duncan Kennedy and a little bit later on we'll look at a tiny bit of uh, Roberto Unger, 
where social life is conceived of, if you like, as this constant tension between the need for emotional solidarity and, if you like, the need for aloneness, the need to not be um, included into community, but at the same time the desire to assert community, a necessarily quite paradoxical um, uh, experience. Duncan Kennedy then, I think quite famously in trying to articulate this idea of community, also says that the friend, his friend can reduce him to nothing by a glance, can make him nothing by just a way of looking at it. And in trying to put this paper together, I came across a, I think possibly where Kennedy, if this is not just a reflection on his own experience, I think he might be taking it from the American sociologist Ernest Irving Goffman, who says this, there seems to be no agent more effective than another person in bringing the world alive or by a glance, a gesture or a remark, shriveling up, shriveling up the reality in which one is lodged. So this is our life with each other, our being with. But given these negative experiences of being with, given these experiences of hostility and disconnection, given the feelings of tyr the tyranny of community, how can Sparrow get at anything? He wants to assert that something can be shared. What is it, this, this thing that can be shared? What is it this, this, that he can link to? This is the move that, that Sparrow wants to make. He wants to link it to welfare. His example is actually healthcare. He says this, our concern is with the other person, not as someone we meet as a friend, but as a stranger, as another person. Another one who is similar, but is not the self. This is if what Sparrow is after is this minimum unit of social concern. What is this? What is it that we share? Drawing on the vocabulary of existentialism, Sparrow suggests it is sickness and it is in death. The basic social unit is our concern for what is shared between us. And this is a kind of vulnerability. Okay, you might say, Adam, this is all very well. What about law? You've said very little about law. We seem a long way from jurisprudence. Moving towards this last section of the paper, what I want to suggest is that we've never really left jurisprudence. In relating law to sympathy and solidarity, we in fact find a major theme, not just in critical legal thinking, but in American realism, for instance. Felix Cohen, writing in the Yale Law Journal in 1931 and building on an argument of Roscoe Pounds about the limitations of formal freedom in relation to law's realisation of relationships of reciprocity, argued that, quote, the good life is the final and indispensable standard of legal criticism, close quote. Indeed, if one turns to Roberto Unger, another uh, philosopher, legal theorist linked to the critical legal stu uh, studies movement, one finds, quote, this is Unger's line, the kernel of solidarity, which is, in Unger's words, our feeling of responsibility for those whose lives touch in some way upon our own and our greater or lesser willingness to share their fate. Arguably, this is Unger writing against alienation. He goes on to say, it's a concern with another as a person rather than just respect for him or her, as a bearer of formally equal rights and duties. However, it's not not about rights, but rights are a poor substitute for this engagement. No matter how fleeting, 
with the other person as such, admittedly. There are immense difficulties with what I am saying. I don't want to suggest that the form that welfare takes historically, the welfare state, is necessarily somehow an unalienated or unreified institutional form. Quite the opposite. My argument is that we need to reclaim welfare. And I'm going to deal in the closing parts of this paper with only one aspect of this argument. It's a cop-out, in other words. How can we use the word welfare in any meaningful way? Can we discover in the etymology of this word a sense that has been lost or obscured and whose recovery might be necessary for a better understanding of, ways in of the ways in which we conceive of our political and legal experience to start with. In terms of the modern meaning of the word, and again, this is a correct meaning, I'm not saying it's incorrect, welfare becomes almost entirely to do with the sense in which social policy can achieve the well-being of its objects, its clients. If you look at the etymology of the word client, take it back to its root, a client is somebody who is spoken for, doesn't speak for themselves, who is spoken for. I think that gets at the, the problem of welfare, if you like, of the institutional form that it takes, an element of the problem. However, I don't want to deny or destroy this link or to suggest that welfare is not properly the concern of the state. It is. However, any return to this complex of problems, I think, can only sensibly take place after a recovery of the primordial meaning of the word welfare. Welfare is a conjunction of two words, hardly surprisingly, well and fair. I'm not going to go into the etymology of well, and I think, in fact, what I want to focus on is the etymology of the word fair. It derives from an Aram root word meaning to pass through or to travel. It's related, related to a Greek word for a way, a path, a passage or a ford, and to the Latin portare, to carry. The sense, this sense of the word is still there in European language, certainly in the Old Norse, the Swedish and the Danish where it relates to a parting or a leave-taking. From this complex of associated meanings, we can perhaps derive a common sense, welfare, with a hyphen between well and fair. The hyphen is there to try and get at this primordial understanding of the term. It expresses, then, a desire that others, other strangers, not our friends necessarily, the others we find ourselves amongst, enjoy good fortune, and things turn out for the best. To wish another well suggests that one has a special regard for them. Welfare, then, is perhaps this form of regard, this form of public regard, that one shows to strangers rather than friends. Richard Titmus, one of the great writers on the welfare state in Britain, is helpful in identifying this sense of welfare as that which motivates us, quote, to help the stranger. The stranger, for Titmus, is not the person who's related to us by personal bonds. We're concerned with what passes between us with a social distance between helper and helped. Perhaps at root what Titmus is getting at is this desire that fate should treat the other person well. With the development of structures of welfare, institutional forms of welfare, 
as a way of lessening the impact of misfortune and ill luck that we could all suffer in social life, perhaps precisely that the form in which this institutional forms of welfare takes place, we lose this sense of a well-wishing, of a well-wishing towards others, of a public well-wishing towards strangers. However, perhaps if this primordial sense of the term can be recovered, what welfare is, is a token of the relationships of public concern that pass between us. Second important point, I'm coming towards the end of the paper. Wishing somebody well takes us back to a notion of reciprocity. I wish you well in the same way that you wish, wish me well, a reciprocal well-wishing. I want to develop this point, in a sense I'm hoping that sparers here, sparers thinking via Buber and Marx is here, to suggest that the encounter in which we wish the other well, in which he or she wishes us well, is one in which we express a concern for his or her welfare. It's linked up with reciprocity, with mutuality, hence our common life together. Reciprocity derives from the Latin reciprocus. The word is composed of a prefix, re, which means back as in a return, and pro, which indicates a number of things, but can be understood to mean what is thrown up ahead as in a project. Reciprocity operates within a mutuality which can be seen as our predisposition for a communal mode of life, where we are adapted to each other. In very crude terms, I recognise you because you recognise me. Neither of us slip from view. Those that recognise each other create a communal life from their own power, their own imminent power. They define themselves as the very living of a life in common. Human being, human beings, cannot be posited outside of this circuit of ongoing exchange. Perhaps then the primordial meaning of reciprocity and mutuality thus carry the sense of a movement out towards others and a return from others to the self. But rather than the self as a perfect unity, perhaps the self as a perfect unity is in fact the reified or alienated self, the other remains, the other remains within the self, admittedly I'm, this is complex language, preventing the self's relationship to self the kind of the frozenness, the, the, the shutting out of the world. Reciprocity then is entirely consistent, if you like, with the fold of consciousness, where the exteriority of the other folds into the interiority of the self, into the soul. To be in a state of reciprocal effect is to be held together by relationships that are imminent to being with, to solidarity, in which we are influenced and influenced in turn. The reciprocal relationships that share out the world of sense don't return us to an essential claustrophobic community where self and other are identical and reflect each other's similarity. We're always separate and different. There's always a distance between us. Sympathy for another person comes out of this reciprocal awareness of separateness. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to argue in this last part of the paper, short part, that this sympathetic subject has largely been lost to jurisprudence. Not completely lost, but is there, if you like, in the margins. In order to do this, I want to refer very briefly, very briefly, to Joseph Raz's important book, The Morality of Freedom. And I know that I'm distorting his arguments because this is a very condensed analysis. 
First of all, it's not as if Raz is a, an easy target. Uh, he believes in collective goods. I believe him, when he's talking about collective goods, to be talking about something like welfare. He doesn't say as much, but I think the two things fit together. Secondly, there is, in fact, despite all the things that people will tell you about positivism, actually quite an intriguing moral vision at work in Raz's work anyway. As a liberal, Raz is committed to a notion of the individual as an autonomous actor involved in the creation of his or her own life. Furthermore, Raz accepts value plurality. The autonomous individual must be able to choose and to choose well. For Raz, this is what jurisprudence is fundamentally a training in, being able to choose. It's an ethical activity, not just to choose to choose well. Between the various activities that give life value. One of the peculiarities of Joseph Raz is that, like Marx, although in a very, very different way, he's using a language of value. In Raz's shorthand, the individual, and this is what the training in jurisprudence, I think, for Raz gives you, and Finnis and others, the individual must be able to aim at the good. Aim at the good, direct quote. Another quote. Thus a person who, quote, drifts through life unawares is not leading an autonomous life. So as if what we actually find in Raz is a critique of alienation, a critique of, re of reification. Okay, in a slightly different form, but it's there in Stringfellow, it's there in Orwell. Different form in Raz. However, for all these themes, Raz arguably has no account of solidarity or sympathy, no meaningful account of solidarity and sympathy. His vision of social space, of social being, is one whereby individuals make their private choices amongst the various courses that life offers them. There is no sense that this social space only becomes meaningful and worthwhile if it is an expression, quite literally, of sympathy, of feeling with. For what else is there? To cite the noted philosopher Jarvis Cocker, outside of alienation and sympathy, we dance and drink and screw because there's nothing else to do. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adam, for an extremely rich and nuanced paper. Um, and uh, I've been asked uh, to come from America to, to give what is called a vote of thanks and a couple of comments. They will be very brief. And um, afterwards, I'm going to invite you all to party. So um, at a personal level, uh, I'd like to express my gratitude and pleasure for being asked by Adam to be here. He's been a friend and colleague of mine for over 20 years. Um, we were having dinner last night, and I remember uh, we, we reminisced about uh, the fact the first time we met 22 years ago at New College in Oxford at a conference, and he was just starting his PhD, and um, I remember him as being extraordinary, there is something special about him. And I, I, um, I, I'm, I hope I won't make him blush too much. But uh, in an American sense, he was not only a great guy, but uh, he, he had a sense of passion 
for ideas that is all too lacking in academics, um, and all, all the more remarkable when you do see it. He also had a, a, a tremendous sense of compassion and kindness, which I am sorry to say is also greatly lacking in many academic spheres. Um, and for that, since then, I've been watching his career with great interest and admiration, but not surprised. And for those of you that uh, don't know his, his accomplishments, I'd like to say that intellectually, the range of his scholarship has been, and interest, has been dramatic. Um, he's written and talked and taught about law and literature, poetry, uh, theology and spirituality, uh, critical race theory, feminist legal theory, metaphysics, um, and political philosophy. Uh, he's visited at a number of places uh, where he's been able to put into operation his concern for the other, the concern that was so admirably expressed in his paper in Uganda, in South Africa, in Costa Rica. And doing all of this, somehow, he's been able to participate in making, uh, being one of the key people in Birkbeck uh, a school of law, making it the world's leading institution of critical thought. And uh, for all of this, I would like to say thank you, Adam. And uh, I would like to say also that your professorship is very well deserved and well earned. So thank you. Um, I have, uh, th there were so many nuggets uh, uh, and interesting parts of the paper uh, that I obviously am not going to be able to comment on all of them. It seemed to me that there were two main um, aspects that were of interest to me, and I'd, I'd, I'd like to just make a couple of remarks about those and, and, and see where we go. Uh, it's quite clear to me that, uh, that the project that uh, Adam is talking about is ethical. That is to say, the position of a law, of law, of lawyers, of judges, of people who are involved in the system as officials, uh, as operatives, and so forth, all too easily can grow a carapace of indifference to their clients, the people for whom they speak and to whom they speak. And it seems to me that the call to an ethical response to that is what, is what Professor Geary meant by overcoming alienation. And um, I think there are two aspects to this that, that struck me as significant. One is the difficulty of getting people or somehow inducing people, lawyers especially, to notice what they do not notice, uh, what they have not noticed at all what uh, Adam calls in his precy the myopia of law. Uh, I'm reminded in this respect of a famous saying uh, by the 12th century saint and philosopher, Saint Bernard of uh, Clairvaux. Uh, he said it in Latin, so I'll, I'll say it in English since I don't speak Latin. Um, and, and it's an important point. It, uh, it's very short. It goes like this. What the eye doesn't see, the heart 
does not grieve over. What the eye doesn't see, the heart does not grieve over. One could translate that into another saying, when ignorance is bliss, it's folly to be wise. And it seems to me that the temptation to be ignorant, the temptation not to see, is precisely what people like Orwell, Jack London, Stringfellow, um, and others were, uh, the, the people that uh, Adam was talking about in his paper, had overcome. And so the first task, it seems to me, in this ethical approach to law is trying to expand the universe of people who are willing to open their eyes to the particular uh, and, and to shed the, the, uh, the, the lenses that, that, that are constructed by our categories and by our alienation from the fact that we are fellow human beings. I may be a judge sitting up here on the bench, and you may be somebody in the dock, but we are in some sense the same. And the question of getting a judge or a lawyer or anyone in a position of power to open their eyes and to open their heart is the first major task. For some people, it's not uh, a choice. I dare say for Professor Geary, it's not a choice. Uh, he is one of the most compassionate people I know. And for many of my other colleagues uh, in the critical legal studies movement, I think if there's anything that marks us out as unique, it's that we all have bleeding hearts. I mean, we all care too much, or we care a lot, let me put it that way. Um, and then the second, the, the second point that I'd like to make about, about the talk, which struck me as equally important, having overcome the temptation not to see, uh, or either having overcome it or, or being forced to do it by your very nature because that's who you are. You're that kind of person who, who cannot not care about uh, suffering and poverty. Um, it's, the second problem is how to develop a relationship with those you've decided now to notice. Um, Professor Geary referred to the notion of client being somebody who is spoken for, and this resonates enormously with me because um, of the category that I've been developing called speechlessness. The poor and the dispossessed, millions and billions in the world, uh, it's not enough to care about them. It, it's, it's important to notice that to understand them on their own terms from a privileged point of view is an enormous difficulty. Um, let, me, let me clarify what that difficulty is about by giving a quote from one of my favorite movies. I won't ask if you've seen the movie, since what I have uh, learned after 40 years of teaching law is the older I get, the fewer people have seen in my classes will say they, they've seen the movies that I refer to. So my cultural references are getting older and older. But this one is from the movie uh, by Oliver Stone's 1986 movie, Platoon, which was uh, a story about the Vietnam War and about a young man who dropped out of college and decided to enlist as what we call a grunt, just an infantryman, and went, found himself in Vietnam with a bunch of soldiers and, and the experiences that they encountered there. 
Oh, there comes a point when he's talking, uh, the character has been wounded earlier and, and now has returned to the platoon, and he's speaking to a, a draftee. Uh, so this, this guy's name's Chris, I guess, the, the character played by Charlie Sheen, and he's speaking to just a poor draftee guy. And the draftee guy says, well, why, well how come you're here? And, uh, and Chris says, uh, well, I, I dropped out of college, and I'll, I'll give you the quote. I, I figured, why should poor kids go off to war? And the rich kids always get away with it. And the look of consternation on the face of King, to whom he's just said these words, was palpable. And he says, oh, I see what we got here is a crusader. Shit, you got to be rich in the first place to think like that. And that, that interchange between the person you'd like to get in contact with to, to overcome alienation vis-a-vis -vis that person and, and their own point of view uh, distills to its essence, for me, the second problem, which is on what terms do the privileged speak to and with those for whom they would like to have welfare, that they would like to express welfare in, in Professor Geary's sense? So I, there are no answers to this question. But, they, but it is a question and it is a problem. It's not enough to overcome. It, it must, the, the question of the terms of the overcoming and the terms of the subsequent relationship must then be th carefully thought about. Otherwise, we have the tyranny of, of pity and the tyranny of rich guys talking for poor guys. And that's no good at all. Um, well, uh, let me once again thanks thank Professor Geary for inviting me and for his excellent talk. Uh, it falls on me now to invite all of you to, to retire from this room and go up a flight of stairs. And there is drinks and food, I believe. And join us in the reception, and we'd love to see you there. So thank you. <laughs>